If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me this morning to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, those of you who are visiting, we have been working our way slowly but surely through this Gospel account, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been in John since the month of May. And while this is the first time that I have in my ministry preached through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we have dipped our toes into various passages in John over the last 13 plus years that I have been here. And this morning is one of those passages, a passage that we looked at together here at Ascension some years ago. And so as I came to John chapter 8, where we left off last week, or to be more precise, John chapter 7, verse 53, I wrestled on three different fronts, and I want to share those with you before I read the text this morning. The first front was the fact that it is Reformation Sunday today. So the first question I ask myself is, should I be taking a break from John and preaching a Reformation Day sermon, whatever in your mind you think that is? There's lots of different conceptions of what a Reformation Day sermon would be. What is Reformation Day, you say? Some of you I know did not grow up in the Presbyterian tradition or even the Reformed tradition, even the Protestant tradition. This weekend... Uh, October 31st, to be precise, is the time of year when we remember the spark of that movement that Martin Luther created as he nailed his 95 theses, we call them. They were propositions disputing the practice of his church, of the church. And this was way back in 1517. And the movement of the Reformation was characterized by five solas. I'm going to flex some Latin for you here. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, Glory to God alone. Now the Reformers, Martin Luther in particular, he wasn't trying to start a new church He wanted to address abuses that he saw within his own church. But nonetheless, it sparked a movement that spread all over Europe. It was simply about returning to the Gospel. Returning to the Word of God. Doing what we're doing today and what I hope we do every Lord's Day that we gather for worship. So while I could have done something out of, or, out of the ordinary, it seemed to me that just pressing on in the Word of God, doing what we do week in and week out, would indeed be a celebration of the Reformation and of their intent. Well, secondly, the second front that I wrestled with this week was we looked at this passage years ago, so do we simply skip it and move on? Well, simply put, I just didn't want to. <laughs> I love this passage too much. I love talking about this story. And many of you weren't here when we went through it last years ago, and frankly, some of you that were here weren't listening anyway. (laughs) And so this is your second chance to hear the message of this text. 
But particularly as we're preaching through John, it is, I think, even more powerfully conveyed uh, the message of it as it's situated where we've been and where we're going and what John has been showing us. And the third front of wrestling, uh, which I actually settled some long time ago, has to do with our passage specifically. If you have your Bibles open, you might notice that there are these big old brackets that are in your Bible that say this, the earliest manuscripts do not include. It's like this big warning label or disclaimer before you come to this story. Now, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of textual criticism. Textual criticism has to do with, as they have compiled these manuscripts, the scholars years ago, as they verify what manuscripts include what and what little grammatical errors there are and what fits where. I don't want to go too much into those weeds, but I do want to say that there are passages, there are chunks of Scripture, of stories that are found in manuscripts that don't appear in your English Bible. That the translators have made the conclusive decision that this was not part of John's original gospel. And so they just didn't even include it. You wouldn't even know it was there. They've made that decision for you based upon their hard work and research. Most passages that you see are incredibly verified, and so you have them, you don't think anything about it, you think this is the Word of God, and it is the Word of God. And then you have this weird area that we're in this morning with these huge brackets. And just by virtue of them not being, them being the translators, the textual critics, them not being certain enough to remove this from your English Bibles, I mean, if you were reading through John in your devotions, you probably wouldn't skip it. Particularly if you see, some say it shouldn't be there, you'd, make, you'd want to read it all the more. I know you. I know me. And so by virtue of it being in there, I think we need to talk about it. We need to figure it out. And I actually think that it does belong in John's gospel. Because I think it fits in with John's overall intent. And if you want a technical explanation about this, I actually wrote a paper on this passage in seminary, which has led me to that conclusion. So, it fits within John's aim. It fits within Jesus' character. It's a great story. And so listen as I read. Stand if you're able, and then we'll jump into it for the next few minutes. John chapter 7, verse 53, reading through verse 11 of chapter 8. This is God's Word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Justice. We want justice. We want justice. How many times have we heard those words chanted on the evening news or seen the signs with those three words being waved about in various instances in our culture? It's a good thing, right? Justice. We're hardwired to want justice. I think it's one of the reasons why I love the show Cops so much. I love to see justice being meted out. As long as it's someone else and not me. Justice is, by definition, the quality of being fair or properly administrating the law. I plant justice in your minds this morning because it's justice that is at the heart of the story that I just read. It's this theme of justice that I want to set our hearts on for a few minutes this morning. Two truths guide us as we walk through this passage. Two truths that I think expose our own hearts and reveal our Savior to us. And the first one is this. We can't handle true justice. You and I cannot handle true justice. I remind you that Jesus' ministry at this point, as we've been working our way through it, is in full swing. He told his mother some time ago that his time had not yet come. He repeated it a couple times. And now we might say, it is Coming. The time is drawing near. The cross is drawing near. And he has just stood up and publicly proclaimed, as we looked at last week, he cried out in a loud voice that he is the fountain of living water. In making that proclamation, he has caught the longing of so many Jews who have waited and anticipated the coming of the Messiah, and he's picked up the disdain, the absolute disdain of those who are in authority. You see, these men who are in authority, these religious leaders, these are supposedly the good guys. The men who guard justice. The men who guard justice specifically as it, retain, as it pertains to God's revealed law. They were experts in the law. And so these men come to Jesus with a 
matter needing justice, right? At least it seems that way. But John gives us a spoiler that the folks there didn't have. In the beginning of verse 6, what does he say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge against him. In other words, the religious leaders are really not after justice. They're after Jesus. They bring this woman as a pawn for their own ends. So they bring this woman. We don't know anything about her. Apparently, she is fresh from the arms of sin. And they remind Jesus of what the law of Moses says. Leviticus 20, verse 10. I read it to you. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And so they put before Jesus what seems to be a difficult dilemma for him. If he lets this woman go, then he tramples on the law, right? This would give them solid charges for his arrest, for a trial, and this is exactly what they'd like to see. But if he respects the law, well, he seems then to trample the woman. Well, that wouldn't be all that bad either, right? Jesus has been gaining a following with the masses as the compassionate Savior, the one who eats with sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes. Now the buzz would be, come to Jesus. You might get stoned for your past, but come anyway. You see, the Pharisees were a certain type of people. They loved the law, but more than that, they prided themselves on adherence to the law. And yet Jesus came because the law couldn't save them. It couldn't save us. It never could, and it never will. And so Jesus, with this seeming dilemma that is put before him, he exposes these men. First of all, the fact that they've nabbed this woman while Jesus is in town seems a little bit fishy. The law stated that at least two witnesses had to catch the couple in the act. And that doesn't excuse her from doing it if she did indeed do it, but certainly the timing of the whole scenario seems a bit questionable. Secondly, where is the man? Both need to be punished. The law prescribes this. And in a culture where Jesus is particularly concerned about how women are being treated, He was particularly sensitive about this. The whole scene, the whole scenario, lastly, is illegitimate. Because the Jews didn't have this power to execute someone. They were under Roman rule. They needed to go through the Roman system. And so Jesus knows all this. And so he knows as they bring this woman to him that this is not justice. This is an injustice. And yet here they are, the keepers of justice, the supposed keepers of justice, twisting it for their own ends at the expense of this woman. And Jesus shows them they can't handle true Justice. He says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
In Old Testament law, the witnesses of a crime were obligated to begin the execution, to throw the first stone. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is go ahead and stone her, met met out your justice as long as you have met all of God's requirements for justice. And we say, whoa, wait a minute. See, Jesus is more concerned about their judgmental self-righteousness than about this woman's adultery. And his word pierces their hearts because they're just as guilty. And with their consciences accused, they simply leave. The older ones first, which is an interesting note. So what's the takeaway for us in this scene? Well, first of all, how easily I'm a closet Pharisee. How easily we can feel justified in our own actions, quick to judge, quick to mishandle those who fall. Our own judgmental self-righteousness, how easily we fall prey to this same kind of mindset. We love justice, but as I said, we don't want it in regards to ourselves. But also, I think one of the takeaways in contrast to my own pharisaical heart is to not miss the compassion, the radical, unbelievable grace of the Lord Jesus in this scenario. Extended to the, to the least worthy, the ones who are caught red-handed. I'm going to talk in a moment about the theological significance of what Jesus did before these men left, but I want you to just feel and let sink in the relational impact of what Jesus does here. And it goes back to last week. It goes back to our attitude towards the broken, towards those who are thirsty, those who just want a drink, even if they're pursuing that drink in the wrong manner. They're just thirsty like we are. And here's this woman. She stands before this group of men, shamed, fearful, with the eyes of everyone boring into her. And what does Jesus do? Where where does that gaze suddenly go? It goes away from her, and it goes to Jesus. What in the world is He doing? What in the world is He doing? You see, Jesus makes Himself the focal point in this scenario. And that's the segue into the second truth, that in Jesus Mercy and justice kiss. In Jesus, mercy and justice kiss. You see, this is not so much about a woman who doesn't get what she deserves or a bunch of religious leaders who do get what they deserve. It's about these things show us Jesus. Remember John's purpose. We've talked about it several different times as we've gone through this book. John 20, verse 31, I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you may have life in His name. And so John intentionally fills his gospel with all of these signs of Jesus that point to the fact that He is the Christ. And he disperses all these significant teaching events where Jesus speaks to the fact that He is the Christ. 
And part of that is that John, and we've seen it multiple times as we've worked through these first seven chapters, is that John compares Moses, one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, the receiver of God's law. He compares Moses to Jesus. Or Jesus does that himself through his own words. Let me remind you of just a few. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it's the first mention of Moses in the gospel. He writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 46, we have Jesus comparing his ministry to that of Moses, saying that he is the very fulfillment of what Moses wrote about. And then most recently, John chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus asked the crowd at the temple, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You see, each of these comparisons between Jesus and Moses, either through John's own words or John's recording of Jesus' words, are made around the law of God. Moses and the law. Jesus and the law. And John has made a point to contrast Jesus with Moses, particularly in regards to the law. And it's in this story that he's doing the very same thing he's done multiple times. But there's something really peculiar in this story. It's not just the comparison to Moses, but it's this designation of his finger. Jesus' finger writing something in the ground. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it record that Jesus writes something. It's the only place. Jesus stooped to the ground took the attention off of the woman, and wrote with his finger something in the ground. We don't know what he writes. There are all kinds of speculation about what he writes. Did he write down their sins? Did he write down what the law specifically demands? Did he write down his verdict? It doesn't matter really what he wrote. You can ask him that when you meet him face to face. It only matters that he wrote And it only matters that he wrote with his finger. Now, is John just being super descriptive? So we don't imagine Jesus like trying to find a stick and writing with a stick? Or is he making some point by designating Jesus' finger? Well, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we find the word translated as finger mentioned in only two contexts. Eight times it's in Leviticus, and once in Exodus as the finger of the priest is mentioned as it describes the sacrificial process. Well, that's interesting. And the other two times are in Exodus 31.18 where we read this, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave, them, or he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets inscribed on stone, by the finger of God. Then in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, Moses recalls this event and again says this phrase. You see, this phrase, the finger of God, 
particularly for the Jew. It described the intervention of the almighty, transcendent creator who descended upon the mountain to communicate with his people, to write his law, to reveal his person to his people. Now here in John's gospel, after all these comparisons with Moses and the law, John describes the finger of Jesus, the new Moses, communicating in the ground before his chosen nation. Moses was just a messenger. Jesus is the author. He is the lawgiver. He is God himself. And while the law brings condemnation, the lawgiver brings salvation. And that's what Jesus wants to convey here. That's what he wants us to see. Moses, through his signs, validated that his authority was from God, and he led God's people in the Exodus. Now Jesus, having validated that his authority is not only from God, but he is God himself, leads God's people in the new Exodus. You see what a beautiful tie-in John is making here to the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews knew so well. But getting back to our passage, he can't go against his own law, right? So what exactly is happening here? We end with mercy and grace. How can Jesus seemingly disregard the law and let this woman go? We know that even though she was likely framed, it seems from Jesus' words that she is guilty. Why? Because Jesus says, go and sin no more. But here, the lawgiver, God himself, communicates to her and to all of us here this morning, yes, before God, you are guilty. But I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. You see, this woman walks away not because of a technicality, but because of grace. And that's why, that's how you and I walk away this morning. Because of grace. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. If you believe that fact, if you believe that verse, if you believe this, then Jesus' words to you this morning are the same to that woman. I don't condemn you, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So go and sin no more. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful message for our hearts. And so I close this morning by asking you this question, who who are you most like in this story? Are you like the crowd who stood watching this whole episode unfold? Found it to be interesting, fascinating, puzzling maybe, but then you went home back to your lives, unaffected by what you saw, too distracted 
to care, too busy with other things. Maybe you're like the leaders, judgmental, prideful, lacking compassion, and yet humbled at the exposure of your own hearts before Jesus. I said last time that we went through this passage, the best person to be in this story is the woman. The sinful woman who came humiliated but left changed. Forgiven and restored and now free to turn from her sin and to live a life of gratitude following her Savior. See, the gospel proclaims to all of us this morning that whatever you've done, there is grace enough. Because he has paid it all. So true justice we can't handle. And that's why Jesus took it upon Himself. And now because of His sacrifice in His grace, He now offers it to you. And He says, receive it. Bask in it. Rest in it. And go and sin no more. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we need to be reminded of the sweetness of Your grace of the comprehensive nature of Your mercy. For You are not a God who just sweeps sin under the carpet, but You are a God who deals with sin justly. And yet we have not felt that justice come down upon our heads. We have simply learned and grabbed a hold of the fact that that justice has fallen on the head of our Savior. And so we thank you once again for a gospel so sweet, so deep, so high, so wide and long. Father, forgive us for living so carelessly in the face of such mercy and grace. And may we live, leave this place not only filled with what you have done for us, but motivated indeed to go and sin no more, to put off and to put on your righteousness and your character and the fruit of your spirit. Oh, Father, do your work as I prayed earlier. Do your work in the lives of your people, no matter what they need. And for those who have never heard such good news, in their shame, in their guilt, may they hear and feel the forgiveness of Christ for them. And may they turn and cling to who you are. For indeed, today is the day of salvation. Father, I pray all these things with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.